Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Parents, I think you can relate to this. These couple of example stories that I want to share with you. How many of you, and be honest, you don't have to raise your hand, but be honest in your heart. How many of you, when you heard your child cry in the middle of the night, daddy or mommy, you heard it, pretended you didn't, and tried to go back to sleep, okay? Is that not true? Yes. And when they go on and on, and finally you realize they are not going to go back to sleep. You're thinking, they just want a glass of water. Come on, deal with it. Fall sleep through the night. And you eventually get up. You go into the room and you find out something like they have vomited all over themselves, all over their covers, all over the floor, and you have to clean them up. Or you hear the oops in the kitchen. You hear a shatter. And you hear him say, Mommy, can you please help me? Now, you know that they didn't cut themselves. You know that there's not blood because they are controlled, okay? They're not freaking out. And the next thought is, is this, time. Because for the next half hour to an hour, you have to sweep the entire kitchen to pick up all the shards of glass. And then you probably have to mop it just in case they don't catch one of those slivers in their feet, right? You're just thinking, oh, the amount of time I've got. is It's like, you know, when glasses hit, it's like the shards of glass think to themselves, let's flee the scene of the crime as far as we possibly can. And all the way across the room, you find these little pieces of glass that you're sweeping up, right? And you're just thinking, are you serious? Or how about maybe that time when your child yells out from the bathroom, Daddy! And you know, uh, there's one thing that they might need, but they're beyond that age, so you realize the toilet's probably overflowing. So you run into the bathroom, right? And sure enough, the water is rising, and it's like an inch from the rim, and you grab the plunger, and you start, you start plunging and plunging away to no avail. And you feel so helpless as you watch the water overflow and onto the floor, and you're just thinking, here's another half hour. What an inconvenience. What a problem. And, and, and you're hoping that the next time you flush it, that it doesn't do that. But as soon as it happens, you're thinking, I got to test it. Did I fix it? And you flush it again. And guess what happens? Yeah, it starts overflowing again. And you realize, now, the only thing I can, well, two things. I can either snake it, but I don't have one. I can borrow one, but I don't know who has one. Or I've got to remove the two bolts and I have to remove the entire toilet. And guess what you find out? There, stuck in the hole that leads to the sewer is the evidence that one of your children wanted to see if they could flush a two and a half inch rubber ball down the toilet. I speak as if I've had experience about this, huh? Here is the reality. When you're a parent, children equals problems, right? And if we're not careful, pr problems are things that we don't like, so we want to push them away. But you know, it doesn't end with that as people People equal problems too. Jesus encountered many people with many problems and our tendency is to think people, problems, problems, let's get rid of them. And Jesus, at times, he, he started moving amongst the smaller towns, not the big cities, not because he didn't want the problems, but because Jesus realized that too many people can actually hinder his ministry. 
Jesus' mindset was always, let's meet the needs of the people. As we look into this story today of the feeding of the 5,000, how many of you have ever heard, by the way, a sermon or a teaching about the feeding of the 5,000? Raise your hand. Okay, like just about everybody. It's one of the most common stories told. Actually, if you've read through the, the Gospels, you find out something very interesting that rarely does John overlap with the other three Gospels called the Synoptic Gospels. But on this story, he overlaps. It's like one of very few. You can count on one hand the stories that overlap, and this is one of them. Now, I hope that as I go through this story, we're going to see something maybe we haven't seen before, but beyond that, something that we're going to be able to take away because our goal here is to focus on how Jesus thought about the crowds. But if we're not careful, crowds equal people, people equal problems, and we don't want problems. And so we tend to generally push away the problems, right? Which means pushing away the people. I know there are some pastors, they have chosen to not live near their church because they want to separate home, home life from work. And they're afraid that the people with the problems are going to inconvenience them. And I understand the idea that people can kind of interrupt family life. But when I look at Jesus's life, and when I look through the, read through the book of Acts, pastoring was not a job. It wasn't a career it was a life. And I'm going to suggest to you that even though I, I have this title, pastor, before my name, that each of us care for, shepherd, or pastor. We make disciples. And by the way, disciples are people who have problems, okay? That's just a reality check. Jesus, in order to make disciples, did not push the crowds away. And so the sermon series that I'm going through is entitled Crowded Thinking. And sometimes you can, if you've been at work overseeing problems or, or a church and you're, maybe you're welcoming people and it's your job to take care of all of their questions and you can have so many people asking questions and one lady comes up and little Johnny, five years old, you don't even know what, you don't even have to ask what her question is because you see that his pants are soaked and you say, down the hall and to the right. And before you know it, we have so many questions being thrown at us at work or, or ministry and, and problems, problems, problems. And if we're not careful, we can want to push that away. Here's an interesting thing. Jesus never did that. Jesus never pushed the crowds away. Even when, as we read the story, like today, you would think, well, surely here he's going to push the crowds away. He never did. To make disciples... We have to think like Jesus did. We have to love and have compassion on the crowds, just like Jesus did. The crowds are people, and yes, they have problems. And we all do. But Jesus' point, as we go through this series, he has compassion, and he sees many times things that we don't. So are you there in Mark chapter 6? I'm going to start with verse 30. And I'm just going to read a portion of Mark, and then we're going to go over to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to finish up the reading of this story, <coughs> excuse me, this story about the, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, you remember last week, we encountered two crowds. We're going to encounter one here. These two crowds, one crowd was filled with anticipation. They've been following Jesus from town to town to town. If some of them started at Capernaum, where the last story originated, uh, took place, the next story that we read in Luke, 
He's now in uh, Nain where he raises the widow's dead son, only son. And there's this other crowd, a funeral procession that has anything but anticipation. They have heartache and trouble. And Jesus looks beyond the crowd. He doesn't say, excuse me, but take a number. But he ministers to these people and specifically to this one woman, raises her son from the dead, and her world is forever changed. That's the compassion and the love of Jesus. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles, excuse me, let me, before I read, I meant to, meant, meant to mention this. But Jesus has, in the beginning of this chapter, sent out the twelve. Many times in Scripture, and we're going to come across this, there's a reason, but we're going to, the, he sends out the twelve. The twelve, the apostles, are not his only disciples. There's, he has many, many more disciples, but the twelve are those designated to be with him and to have power and authority in his ministry here on earth and to train them. And so he sends them out, giving them power and authority, sends them out. They are preaching the kingdom of God. They are casting out demons. They are anointing them with people with oil, and they are being healed, and God is using these 12 in a mighty way. And they go from town, they break up two and two, and two, and they go out and ministering all of the towns, and then he gathers them. Now, I don't know how he gathered them. Maybe he said, meet me back here on such and such a date, or maybe he just sent them a page or a quick you know, text or say, hey, meet me now. Um, but they reconvened, and he is needing them to decompress as we move into this story. So let me start again. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Been there? He said to them, to the 12, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw him leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he said, Oy vey, really? Now, that's, that's what I would have said. Are you serious? Here, can, can you not just give me some space? I just, I just need this time alone. I need this time with my disciples. I need this time to decompress. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to underline that entire phrase. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? So we began teaching them many things. Now, the other Gospels, we're going to see in Luke, he heals them. He does something else that we're about to read. But this is, this is the setup of this story of the feeding of the 5,000. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Starting with verse 10, I'm going to read through verse 17. Luke continues with the story. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town 
called Bethsaida. Now, let me just say this, that because this is a remote place, though it's Bethsaida, it's in the region of Bethsaida. Actually, when Jesus sends them at the end of the story across the lake, he sends them initially to Bethsaida by boat perhaps to get supplies at the end of the day. And then that's when they struggle at the oars because of the the winds and such. We're not going to get it into that story. But so they are coming to Bethsaida, but technically it's outside of Bethsaida in a remote place. But the crowds learned about it. Understand he uses the plural there, crowds, not just a crowd, but there are many crowds, people that Jesus has touched along the way, and that many of them we don't know, but his popularity has preceded himself. People from various towns, various crowds are now coming to him. And they learned about it and they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away. Notice the disciples' response at this point. He sent the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. They answered, excuse me, he replied, I want you to underline this. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate. And were satisfied. And I want you to underline that phrase. They all ate and were satisfied because we're going to need to unwrap that a bit. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. And I want you to underline that phrase too broken pieces. Maybe in your Bible it says fragments. <clears throat> 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. So we see here that Jesus is wanting some time to decompress with his disciples. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's a very legitimate desire. Leaders need those that are coming to him and reporting to him. they just been sent. This was their first short-term mission trip. And there was amazing things that happened. Demons were cast out. You don't see that in the Old Testament. And now... As the kingdom of God has come, the spirit of God is moving in a way unprecedented. Demons are cast out. They're preaching the kingdom of God, and some people reject them, furiously reject them. Some people accept them. And as they lay hands on the sick, anoint them with oil, they're being healed. They saw Jesus doing this, and now they themselves are walking in the same power and authority. What? There's this sense of excitement and, and anticipation. And Jesus, you got to hear this story. Let me sit down and tell you. Jesus wanted to hear their stories. Jesus wanted them to ask the questions. You know what, Jesus? We had a problem with this situation. What do we do here? And what a teaching opportunity. As he sits down and talks with them, though, people start gathering around, so much so, Mark tells us, that they couldn't even eat. 
Now, I don't know if you as a parent have ever experienced this. I say that rather sarcastically. Every parent has experienced this, especially you moms, in which you're trying to sit down to eat and your child wants this and he wants this and what's for dessert? What do you mean what's for dessert? We're not even beginning your dinner yet. And asking for more to drink. What do you mean more to drink? I just set your, your drink before you and it's all gone. And you, you never have a chance to rest. You're getting up constantly. And by the time they're done and want dessert, now you finally sit down to eat. Yeah, right. And, and we can feel this urgency and we can, if we're not careful, we can get frustrated, right? We can get frustrated with, with our kids. We can get frustrated with people. And Jesus does not do this. Now, he does want to get away, fulfill this. There is a need here. His disciples have a need. But people are milling around, asking questions. Nothing that we know of as far as Jesus' teaching or healing is taking place. They're just all around. No time to eat. So he, he takes them away to a remote place. And wouldn't you know it, the crowds follow him there. Now, perhaps the boat trip, which it was maybe about three and a half miles that they rode, the boat trip was sufficient time for Jesus to grab that time that he needed with his disciples. That's possible. But when he lands, he doesn't push the crowds away. And he welcomes them, Luke says. He has compassion on them, like they were sheep without a shepherd. Matthew tells us in Matthew 9, a different story. He uses this very same phrase. Jesus looked on the crowds like, and he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Why? Because He says this, because they were harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've never been a shepherd. I've read a little bit about it. But as I understand sheep, sheep are, are not real smart animals. They will do anything possible if they have a need. They will wander far away from their shepherd and from safety looking for green pastures and still waters. They want their needs met. They are so focused on their needs, my need, my need, my need, that they will get lost. They will stray and get lost looking to have their needs met. This then causes many of them to, to, to be helpless. They've gone astray. They're by themselves. There is no one to take care of them because the one that was supposed to take care of them is about a mile away and the sheep is lost. Jesus, excuse me, Isaiah says 700 years before Christ, he says, you know what? We're all like that. People are like sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And this crowd is no exception. And Jesus looks at them. They're harassed. They've got problems. They're helpless. They don't know how to meet these problems, meet these needs. Some of them, their problems are so serious. They're so deep that the only way that their needs can be met is if God intervenes. And some of us here this morning are just like that. And you're in situations where unless God intervenes, where is my life going? And I am so grateful, Kat, that God intervened in your life. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I think he's going to keep intervening in your life. Because God, as we were saying, God only desires our good. So sure is this truth, church, 
that if something bad, bad, I put in quotes, happens from our perspective, bad, it is because God has a greater good that he's going to take us to. That is how sure this promise is. And so here's Jesus. He's looking out. He sees these sheep. They're like, a sh- they're like sheep without a shepherd. No one that can help them. No one that can feed them. No one that can take care of their problems. And there's this sense of hunger, this spiritual, relational hunger, this need that is not being met. And so they come with anticipation to Jesus. Luke says that he welcomes them. He begins to meet their needs. He has compassion on them. This is that same Greek word for compassion, not used a lot in Scripture. Actually, the verb, as I mentioned last week, is only found in the Gospels a few times, but we find it here as well. We saw it last week. Jesus looked at the woman, and the NIV says his heart went out to her. Well, we know that the root word for this word compassion is not heart. It's actually intestines, guts. Yeah. Interesting little concept there. But uh, I love you with all of my guts, I guess, is how they would say it in that culture. But the truth is that Jesus, is ha- he had compassion on this widow. Now he has compassion on this crowd because he sees people. And when he sees people, he sees needs that he doesn't push away that he doesn't try to go back to sleep, so to speak, and pretend that they're not crying out for him, okay? Honestly, I'd love to know how many parents have ever, I've done that. (laughs) But the truth is Jesus does not push them away. Jesus welcomes them. I can remember when, when I was in college, and it was a very unique time in my life. There were... I, there were a lot of challenges for me, challenges for my schedule, challenges. I was now a, an engaged young man and, you know, balancing my life with my wife-to-be, with my family's needs, and that I, I, I was a, a commuter, uh, balancing that with ministry. I was a, a teen leader, teen, teen pastor at a church. I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, um, and, and I wanted to reach the people there at the college. We're a small college, honestly, 13,000. How many does UCF have, like 100,000 or more? Uh, So very different atmosphere at University of Delaware. And so I remember having studied for a test the night before, and I got only a few hours. I was so tired. Um, when I would go on my lunch, when I would take lunch, I would go to the commuter's lounge, which was a church that had been renovated by the university. Half of it was a place where you could eat. The other half was a study area. So I would eat my lunch there, and then I would study in the study lounge. When I would eat my lunch there, there were small picnic tables, no, about this long and normal width, I guess. But you, would, you could sit down maybe by yourself or two people, sometimes crowded there before. And I, I would always go into this lounge, and I would look for people, and I would say, God, would you show me who you want me to sit with? Because I didn't know any of them. They were like, there were just faces. There, were, there, were, there was a crowd. And I would say, God, who do you want me to minister to? And I would just pause there for a moment as I would look, and invariably the Lord would just allow my eyes to rest on a person, and I would go sit down with them, and I would start eating lunch, 
and God would always have an opportunity to minister, many times sharing my testimony or the gospel. On this one occasion, though, I did not do this. I walked in there, and I'm, I'm so out of habit, I would pause and just pray, God, would you show me? And I would say, God, oh, I'm so tired. Please don't show me. I, I just want to decompress. I just want some downtime. I'm so tired. Let me just, you know what, God, I'm just going to quickly eat my lunch, and I'm going to go study. That was a wonderful solution. And then as my eyes scanned the room for a place to sit, the Spirit of God just so strongly told me, sit down with that person. Okay, I'll sit down with them. I won't say anything. I'll pull open a book. Surely they won't bother me. And I couldn't do it. I sat down and we engaged in a conversation. And this person had some childhood experiences that blew my mind that I'm not going to get into. But I, at the end, I said, let me just state the obvious here. God has his hand on your life, and you're running from him, and he is not going to let you go until you surrender. And I, an amazing divine appointment to share my testimony and the gospel with this young man. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what I, I shared Christ with him. I called him to pursue Jesus. I was super bold and in your face with it, which I generally am a little bit more laid back and kind of just cast the line. But this was an unusual situation. And here I go walking into the crowd, and I felt like, you know, one of the 12 <laughs> send the crowd away, so to speak. Um, so they can go and get some food, or God, send me away so I can get some food. And what, I just didn't want to be with the crowd. And, and Jesus, Jesus never turned the crowd away because the crowd was not just a bunch of numbers to Jesus. It wasn't like the DMV, take a number, but rather it was people with needs, and some of them with absolutely horrific problems, and Jesus welcomes them. He teaches all afternoon, casting out demons, healing the sick, and at, towards the end of the day, the disciples say, um, you know, Jesus, this is a remote place, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's nowhere to get food. Now, in John, and we're going to look at John in just a moment, John introduces us to three people, Philip, Peter, and Andrew. All three of them, we are told in John chapter 1, this is John 6, John chapter 1, they were all from Bethsaida. And so Jesus asks them, hmm, hey, Andrew, where do you think we could get some food? You know, I just want to cover all of my bases here before I do a miracle, all right? <laughs> and so... Uh, Eight months' worth of wages couldn't supply food enough for these people. And so Jesus says, hmm, interesting. Then we find out here, he says, you know what? I've got an idea. I think this is going to take care of the problem. I want you to feed them. And they're kind of taking, wait, 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 wait. Maybe you did not hear us, Jesus. And they discover there's a boy with five loaves of bread and two fishes. Peter in, in John 6 says, I have a solution 
but it's really not. <laughs> he kind of laughs, it seems. There's a boy here with five loaves and two fishes. You know what? Jesus says, that's enough. Have them sit down in groups of 50. And Jesus tells them, you feed them. Now, it says right here that in all of the Gospels, including John, it says they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. So just like the Jews as they're wandering through the wilderness, Moses is leading them. God is providing manna every single day. And they were told, don't save any, because by the morning it will, be, it will perish. And so I would venture to say that every day they were all satisfied. They all ate and had their fill. Now, maybe that's what your version says. They ate and were filled. The Greek word, it's one Greek word. It doesn't mean to fill. It just simply, it means to have eaten and now you're satisfied. You're full. You're content. And I had to look at this and, and ask then, why is it that Jesus has them pick up the fragments? Now, some of your versions translate this Greek word fragments. Others, a little bit more literally, broken things or broken pieces. It comes from the Greek word broken. Now, I want to ask you, why does Jesus tell them to gather the fragments? Because the synoptics tell us when they did this, they came back with 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Right now, I want to go a step deeper into this story. I believe that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, hint at something deeper here that John, when he read them, because John, the Gospel of John many times fills in stories that the synoptics don't touch on. And when they do touch on a story, like the feeding of the 5,000, he introduces people like Andrew and Peter and Philip that the synoptics don't. And he, when he tells the story, he sees things from a different perspective. Only John, for example, tells us that Jesus sent them away, his disciples away by boat and not by land because the people wanted to make him king by force. Problem, how am I going to resolve this? We got to get out of here. So he tells us, you go off by the sea and he hides in the mountain praying. Now, why does Jesus ask them to gather the fragments? I think, first of all, we can answer that by, by saying we are not seeing environmental Jesus here. We're not seeing environmental Jesus. I, can I just say, for the record, I am all about saving the environment. I believe that's our Christian duty in Genesis 1, and 28. It's called the, the cultural or the dominion mandate. God has made us masters to subdue the earth. That doesn't mean to destroy the earth. That means to care for the earth. We are responsible as masters and caretakers of this earth. However, in our day, 
Because people do not have a Christian worldview, they see environmentalism as something very different. They come up with names, titles, Mother Nature, okay? Mother Nature, um, Mother Earth. And the reason why they do this, by the way, it's rooted in paganism, is because the earth gives us life. As Christians, we have a challenge before us within this concept of environmentalism, which is not what my sermon is about. I'm just touching on it so you, I clarify this point. As Christians, we either look to Mother Earth or to Father God. It's your choice. I am all about caring for my environment, but my, but my Earth, this Earth, is what I am called to care for. My life, however, comes from God himself, always. If I plant if I sow and water and reap, my life still does not come from the earth. It still comes from the very hand of God himself who seeks to provide in abundance. Because as he told the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, God gives you the ability to make wealth. He gives us the ability in all areas of life to confirm his covenant with us. So I don't want to stray from my point here, but I don't think we are seeing an environmental Jesus here. I do, not, I do believe that cleanliness at least is almost next to godliness, but Jesus is not having them go around picking up the fragments because, guys, hey, and, and this, is, this is a principle that I always go by when I'm using someone else's space, a church, whatever it is. We want it to look cleaner when we leave than when we arrived. But I don't think that's what Jesus is, I don't think that's what Jesus, what is on Jesus' mind here. He's not wanting to say, come on guys, let's clean up after ourselves, come on. He's not cracking the whip on this. There, there's no hint of that anywhere in the Gospels. In fact, when they do pick up the broken pieces, every single Gospel, including John's, tells us there were 12 basketfuls. 12 basketfuls. Now, here is something that Luke does. Are you in Luke? Here's something that Luke does. Very interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the number 12 actually has a meaning to it. Now, apart from its meaning, I think 12 would simply represent, you know what? There were five loaves and two fish that would fill up less than one basket. And then after everybody ate and were satisfied, we have 12 baskets of its remains. That says something like an abundance of God's provision. Does it not to you? It is God, there's nothing to eat in the wilderness. And you wake up in the morning and on the floor of the desert is manna and they are all filled. And there's probably over 2 million Israelites that God feeds every morning until they finally arrive at Gilgal on the other side of the Jordan River, and that very day, the manna stops. God amazingly provides. So I, I think very clearly, the Gospels are wanting us to see this concept of abundant provision. And I want you to know, church, that you serve a God who's not just wondering, wow, man, ah. I have a little time, not a lot of resources. Can you get by on just this little bit? God's heart is never like, I have to admit, sometimes I have to check my heart. 
and I, I want our money to stretch so I can, you know, yeah, just a little bit here and just a little bit here. And, and I think God understands this. I hope I'm not rationalizing, but God is a God of abundance. Oh, you need something? Let me give you a lot of it. Let me, give, let me fully meet your need. So if you're coming here this morning with this, with this need, this heartache, with this relational breakdown or this financial need or uh, a, a school and it's just feeling overwhelmed, the guys at UCF, SSC, et cetera, you're coming up on finals here and just, I probably shouldn't even said that because you're not going to listen to the rest of the sermon, will you? You're worrying. No, I, no. I just covered that with the blood of Jesus, right? Sorry, we joke about that. Uh, my point is, I don't want you to be distracted, men and women who are in school, but, and by the way, by the way in my class in apologetics, you, anybody in here, a few, don't forget the final coming, or the, the test that's coming up next month. What I want to say is God, he longs to meet all of our needs in super abundance. But I'm going to suggest to you that the synoptics hint that there's something more than just simply God wants to meet our needs in superabundance. What is that? Back to the number 12. The number 12, and, and you can test this. You can do a word study. It's the Greek word is dodeca. You can just look that word up, find out every place that it's used in the New Testament, don't look in the New Old Testament. You're not going to find the Greek word in there. You can look up the number 12 in Hebrew. But as you go through the New Testament, you're going to discover something. The number 12, for example, is the number of apostles. The number 12, as we go into, say, Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem, there are 12 gates, which represent 12 tribes of Israel, 12 foundation stones, which represent the 12 apostles. So you have both the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. The tribes, tribal leaders, or the apostles were representatives of the people of God. People of God. The number 12 is found in many places, and I would, I would suggest that this word 12 generally is used to represent the people of God. Now, I'm not going to go into everywhere that the number 12 is used. Revelation 20, okay, a little bit. Revelation 22. <laughs> the tree of life produces 12 different types of fruit, one for each month, which there are 12 of, and it brings sufficiency to the nations. Its leaves bring healing to the nations. That is the people of God in heaven. So I'm just going to throw this out there. I think 12, if we were to look at this concept of numerology, which, by the way, is prevalent in both Old and New Testament, especially the New, um, we could look at many different numbers and how they're used. They are rarely, if ever, used as the main teaching point, though. As we go through this, let me just point something out to you. In Luke, if you were to go to Luke chapter 8, you're going to encounter this number two times. Jesus, after healing the demoniac in Gadara or Gergesa, he goes by boat to Capernaum, 
and he is met there by a crowd that he welcomes, by the way. And Jairus, the synagogue ruler, has a daughter who is about to die. Guess how old she is? 12. Yes, she is. Luke is the only one who does this because he separates these two numbers. The, the, Matthew and Mark separate these two numbers by many verses because there's two stories that are pulled together in, in the Gospels. Luke purposely, one verse after the other, tells us how old the damsel is who's about to die, and then the woman with the issue of blood who boldly touches the hem of gar- the garment of Jesus to be healed. We find out she's had an issue of blood for how long? 12 years. It doesn't stop there. In chapter 9, the very next story, we are introduced to Jesus sending out his apostles, but he doesn't, Luke doesn't call them apostles. He says, the 12. It, it, it say, he, he uses the 12 here and there, but it's very clear. Okay, wait a second. 12, 12, now here, 12. And as we move into this story of the feeding of the 5,000, we are told again that the 12 apostles come to Jesus and say, how can we take care of all of these people? And Jesus says, I want you to feed them. And we encounter this number 12 again. And at the end of the story, we're told that they gather 12 basketfuls. Let me speak to this point of the story where Jesus says, I want you to feed them. They laugh at this, almost in mockery. Eight months' wages wouldn't be enough. We'd have to, we're going to have to send them into the village. Okay, Philip, I, Jesus, you know, I know this place. There's nothing out here. There's no berries. There's nothing. We need to send them back into the city to get something to eat. We can't afford it. We don't have enough money. So send them back to Bethsaida and let them eat on their own. And Jesus has said, I'm afraid that they're going to faint on the way. So he, he feeds them here. Now, he has told them, I want you to feed them. I'm going to suggest to you that is exactly what God did. God had the apostles feed them. Jesus breaks the loaves of bread. I mean, there's five loaves, 12 disciples. I'm not going to figure out how Jesus did that, but he did the math right and broke it up, gave it, and then he took two fish. Okay, that means one-sixth for you and one-sixth. He gives them to the, the 12 who have had the people sit in groups of 50, and then he begins to feed them. Maybe they had the little baskets that they gathered the fragments with, and they had put those, that one broken piece of bread and that one broken fish in there, and they're probably just, seriously, Jesus, I feel like a fool. And he hands it and says, what does he do to, the first, to their first 50? Here, pass it around. And each of them bring this food that Jesus just blessed to these groups of 50. And, and I can only imagine they have one basket or this is how they're passing it around. And, and there is constantly an abundance, much like the widow of Zarephath when she is pouring out oil. And he says, gather all as many containers, jars that you can from your neighbors. And when you begin to pour that last little bit of oil you have, it is not going to run dry until that last container is full. 
And so Jesus, is they're passing the, the basket, you know, a different type of basket than what we pass. If he's passing the basket, the, it just keeps multiplying. There's more and there's more and there's more and there's more. Who fed them? Okay, Jesus technically did, but he gave the baskets to them. And in their very hands, the bread and the fish multiply. Right before their very eyes. They had preached the kingdom, they cast out demons, they'd healed the sick, and now God is using them to provide an abundance for the, the crowd. What's left behind are broken pieces. The 12 baskets are filled with these broken pieces. I want us to see something here that the synoptics only hint at, and then we're going to conclude in John with a point, but I think what we see here is that these crowds, as the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed to them, as they have been set free and healed, as now they have been filled and satisfied, that these people are seen as now responding in some measure. We don't know exactly how, but responding in some measure that John picks up on and he is, he, it, it is almost as if a symbol in which they are becoming the people of God, but a people who are broken. What they leave behind are these broken pieces. So what does John then say? What, what are the synoptics hinting at that John then fills in? So turn to John 6, and we're going to conclude with this. How does Jesus treat the crowds? How does he see them? He sees them as people with problems, but he welcomes them because he has the power and the authority to meet their needs. And so he has compassion on them. And my, cha my challenge to each of us is that we should have that very same compassion because we too have been given power and authority in Jesus' name to proclaim a gospel that will set people free and set them on a new course in life to enjoy God and be satisfied in him forever and to be able to pray for the sick and that God might heal, to be able to pray for people's relationships, that he might heal those relationships, to be able to see the power of God step into the crowds of this world that we are calling to Christ and see Christ be the sum answer to every need that they have. This is what we offer. This is what we offer to the broken in this world. So what does John say? In John 6, I just want your attention to be brought to verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. What does he mean by wasted? I don't think that we're seeing environmental Jesus here. I also don't think that Jesus wants the food gathered to feed the poor. Though I, I think his heart would certainly be to meet the needs of the poor. Number one, why would he gather food that had been in people's mouths and in their hands to feed the poor? I think Jesus has a better view of the poor than that. You know, just give, them, just give them the leftovers. Just give them the scraps, you know? That's how we think, but that's not how Jesus thought. Jesus did not tell them to gather that to give to the poor in Bethsaida. He does not 
put the baskets on the boat to be given to the poor on the other side of the lake because the waves that crashed over the boat would surely have ruined the bread. So why does he say, gather them so that nothing may be wasted? John's gospel uses this Greek word, be wasted, several times. And he, he, he focuses actually on this. Apollumi is the Greek word here. It can, be mean, it can mean not lost or not spoiled or not perish. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will Apollo me, not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus has them gather 12 baskets of broken pieces because he did not want them to perish. Do you see the symbolism in this? Now, if, if you're not, if you're saying, well, Pastor Mike, I think you're really stretching it. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. In chapter 6, verse 27, excuse me, 20, we'll start at verse 26. He says to that crowd that was with him, that he fed, that when the disciples went to the other side of the boat, the very next morning, the crowd is there, the very same crowd. And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You were satisfied. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which a son of man will give you. On him, the son of man, the father has placed his seal of approval. He then goes on to talk about how he is the true bread of heaven. He is that manna that was truly fed in the wilderness that he now offers, that whoever comes and eats of his body, he says, will live forever. What is he saying here? To that very crowd that he gathered the 12 baskets of broken pieces, I believe he would be saying this. Your lives are all broken. Without God and without Jesus in your life, that's all you have are the broken pieces in your life. And I am here to gather them. And I'm here to call you as my people into this thing called the body of Christ. And as you partake of me, I will satisfy every ache and every hurt in your soul. And I want to ask you, when you go to the crowds, when you're, God's stirring you to make disciples and you're looking for opportunities to reach out, are you like me that one day when I walked into the community center, the, the, uh, the, that, reform, that church that had been uh, modified, and as I stepped into that lunch lounge, you know, wow, God, I really don't want to do this thing today you're going to find hurting people everywhere. And God is saying, can you look upon the crowds with the very compassion that I had and with the very challenge and call to these broken 
people and call them and let them know that in Christ and in Christ alone is their satisfaction. And in Christ alone can he truly meet your needs and not just meet them, but do so in abundance. This is the God that we serve. This is what we are calling the world to. World, look, crowds, look at this. People, see Jesus. He alone is going to be able to heal the brokenness in your life. He alone is going to put your life back together. He alone is the one who will satisfy. Stop looking elsewhere in this world. Stop looking to the boyfriend or girlfriend. They will not satisfy. Stop looking to see how much money you can make. Money cannot satisfy. Stop looking to power or position. That will never satisfy. You'll always want more. Stop looking for people's attention. Trying to live life to win people's love. I'm sorry to say this, but they will disappoint you. Jesus and Jesus alone will always satisfy. This is what we bring to the world, to these 12 baskets filled with broken pieces, calling them to Jesus, the one and only one who can satisfy that deep hurting and longing in the soul. This is a gospel of good news. This is truth that will change people forever. It's changed us. And I'm going to suggest to you, if we have the heart of Jesus filled with compassion and we share that truth with the world, it will change them as well. Can you stand with me? Father, I recognize that whenever the people of God gather, there are always problems that we carry and bring with us. There's always hurts. There are broken hearts. There are disappointments. Father, I believe that today you're telling us that Jesus has the answer. And so right now we're saying to you, God, we're looking to you. We desperately need you. And I just ask you, Father, as we call out to you, I guess first you have called out to us and said, walk on this water. But Father, as we come to Jesus on this water, that we would look above the waves, that we would see a God who has come in human form to suffer the very things that I suffer, but to provide the answer to every need that I have. And I thank you, Jesus, that you have won our hearts and you've rescued us, you've pulled us out of the world. But God, to be honest, it is so easy to turn back to the world and thinking maybe there I can find satisfaction. God, show us, please get it in our spirit. That will never be the answer. And so not only have you satisfied us, God, and continue to offer that to us, but there is a dying world, crushed, broken desperate need of this truth that we have found in Christ. So Father, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. May you invade people's lives, that we tell people about Jesus, that they would find themselves looking to you above the waves and finding full satisfaction 
and hope and promise in you. Give us your heart, Jesus, please, and fill us with compassion, extending always that hope to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.